Welcome to the Future of Protein Production Podcast. In this series, we will explore the technological advancements that are shaping alternative proteins. From cultured meats to plant-based proteins, we will talk to experts and innovators who are working towards a more sustainable, efficient, and kind protein production system. Join us as we dive into the exciting possibilities and challenges of the alternative protein production industry in the years to come. Good afternoon, good morning, or even good evening, wherever you're listening to, uh, listening in from around the world. Thank you. It's great to have you with us. Uh, before we get started, as usual, just a quick rundown of who we are, the future of protein production. We are a digital platform connecting companies right along the alternative proteins value chain from research at one end to retail at the other and everything in between. We achieve this primarily via content such as daily news, weekly emailers, monthly webinars, podcasts, our quarterly business-to-business magazine, Protein Production Technology International, and live and virtual exhibitions and conferences. And on that note, the future of Protein Production Live is taking place on the 11th and 12th of October at Rye Amsterdam in the Netherlands. There is still time to book your seats at what is set to be a fantastic two-day forum for innovation with 65 speakers, six panel discussions, over 20 exhibitors, a startup pitch session, and more than 300 attendees already confirmed to attend. And I think I'm right in saying that at least two of our panelists today will be with us in Amsterdam in a few weeks' time. Now, on to today's discussion. Genetic engineering, biomaterial design, and sequencing for growth media and cell lines. So two of the most important components in the production of cultivated meat, which, as recent developments in the USA have proved, is no longer a dream, but a reality, even if it is at the smaller end of the scale for the moment. Regulatory and consumer acceptance aside, cultivated meat companies need to work out how to bring the cost of production down and move to scale. As Josh Chetrick told me from Good Meats a couple of weeks ago, scaling remains the biggest threat to the industry. Beyond the initial capex, the biggest cost component for cultivated meat makers is the media in which the cells are grown. And according to various people I've spoken to over the past year or so, it is a mess estimated that growth factors in cell culture media can take up anywhere between 55 and 95% of the marginal cost in manufacturing cell cultivated products. Cell lines, meanwhile, another fundamental component of cultivated meat production, serve as the source of the muscle, fat, and other cell types required to produce meat products. But obtaining a reliable and consistent source of high quality animal cells for initiating cell lines can be challenging. And as one of our panelists told me just last week in an interview, there is a shortage of species specific cell lines globally at the moment. For both cell lines and growth factors, transitioning from small-scale lab cultures to large-scale bioreactors for commercial production is an enormous task. Optimizing the process for scalability while maintaining product quality is also a significant hurdle, and we'll be discussing those and other considerations in the next hour or so, but more importantly, highlighting some of the solutions. The development of growth factors and cell lines for cultivated meat is a multidisciplinary endeavor involving biology, biotechnology, engineering, and food science. So genetic engineering is useful for areas such as cell line improvement, nutrient utilization, texture and flavor enhancement, fat control, and more. Despite the challenges ahead, the potential benefits in terms of sustainability, animal welfare, and global food security make cultivated meat a field of research and innovation that is well worth pursuing. And today we have four fantastic panelists who I am sure will agree with that sentiment. So before we get into the discussion, just to let you all know, feel free to pose any questions to our panelists today via the chat box at the side there on the right. Um, It would be great if you provided your name and the company you're from, and I will do my best to either get to some of those questions at the end or during today's broadcast. Right, let's meet our panelists. Ladies first, Catherine, uh, could you please introduce yourself, a little bit about you and your company, QKind? 
Afternoon, Nick, and great to join you and your audience today. Um, and indeed, I am looking forward to meeting everyone in person at the Future of Food Production Live. So um, be nice to say hi to everyone. Uh, real people are good to deal with, aren't they? So I'm a biochemist by background and moved between biotech and academia throughout my career. Uh, before founding QKine seven years ago with uh, Marco Huvenen, who's a, a professor of structural biochemistry at the University in Cambridge here, um, and a world expert on complex growth factors like activin A's. Um, and here at QKine, we specialize in growth factor manufacturers, manufacturing, we're, we're protein geeks basically here, my whole team are. Um, and we, you, we use a, a highly scalable microbial fermentation system to, to manufacture our, pro, our proteins. And we, I think the uniqueness of what we do here is we combine this manufacturing process with adapting growth factors to optimize their activity outside the physiological niche. So, um, and this is to help improve their properties for scale-up of cell manufacturing. So this might be to improve compatibility with animal-free production systems or increase manufacturing yield to reduce cost, refine the bioactivity of the protein to reduce the, the physical size of the protein and improve reproducibility or the properties within that, that bioreactor, or indeed to really optimize the fundamental biological properties of the protein, such as increasing half-life in culture or removing natural inhibition feedback mechanisms. In a nutshell, that's what we do, and it's great to talk to you guys. It's great to have you with us, uh, Catherine. Um, Rowan, I'll come to you next. Um, how did you get into this field, and could you tell us about Ivy Farm Technologies? You're, you're the only one here today who's actually involved in the production of a, an end product, an end cultivated meat product. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Nick. And uh, yeah, great great to be here today and join you all to talk about this really cool subject. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, Ivy Farm, we're an innovative food technology business. We're based here in Oxford, which is, uh, you know, I'm sat here right now in our HQ. Um, we've got about 50 scientists, you know, and they're all concentrated working on the biggest problems we've got today in cultivated meat. So we span everything right from cell biology, tissue isolation, uh, the genetic engineering, the culture media design, the bioprocessing, and then up to the large scale manufacture. I think, you know, one of the really key USPs we've got here at Ivy, which gives us a real granular insight into the industry is that end-to-end -end value chain. I mean, literally downstairs, they're there working right now all the way up to like a 600-liter terminal bioreactor. So it's really cool stuff, and it means we can really put our cell lines and media to the test, um, you know, on a weekly basis. So, you know, I got into this field. My, my background is quite aligned. It's a bit of a mix of physiology, skeletal muscle biology, and then, you know, bringing that into regenerative medicine context. I was in academia, PhD, classic postdoc, and a fellowship and my, my main area of research was tissue engineering of you know 3d pieces of skeletal muscle tissue mainly towards a patient specific context mm -hmm. uh, not things you want to eat but a lot of the technologies are all very aligned to this industry yeah. um, so i joined ivy farm two years ago and you know here i tried to provide a, a little bit of scientific leadership to the cell engineering and the cell line development processes we've got here you know and i'm fortunate to work with a really highly skilled team of scientists here, you know, who are the ones who are really driving this forward on a, on a daily basis. Brilliant. Thank you, Rowan. Now on to Romero. What's your background and can we have a quick uh, rundown of pluricells? Yeah, thanks, Nick, for having me and, and thanks for sharing this um, panel session with, with um, these colleagues. Uh, I'm a professor of development of biology working here at the University of Nottingham. 
and I've um, worked in in cell biology and embryology for past for the past twenty years or so, and so we've been very interested in understanding how how embryos produce cells uh, and how those cells become committed to different lineages. And in this case, uh, our focus has been primarily to uh, understand the lineages that make the meat. So uh, we have worked uh, in in in, in, in basic understanding of how muscle and fat are, are specialized from a set of cells in the embryo that are the embryonic precursors of everything that makes a fetus. So as a result of that, basically underpinning research into early embryology, we developed highly versatile cell lines that are extracted or obtained from pre-implantation embryos. And these are embryonic stem cells from livestock species that um, can be grown uh, outside of the embryo uh, basically forever. These are, these are basically permanent cell lines, immortal uh, by nature, because these cells can be captured in vitro. And, and they act as a very interesting source of cells for initiating the process of cultivated meat, which uh, when we invented this technology, the field didn't really exist at the time. This is about five, six years ago. But we became very um, interested in, in, in the applications of this type of cell technologies for cellular agriculture. And so we um, developed this platform technology that we call Pluricells as a name, a commercial name. And this is basically technology that companies can license uh, from uh, sheep, cattle, or, or, or pig uh, species uh, in a customizable way. So companies can come to us. So we are a B2B supplier, so business to business supplier of, of cell lines for the downstream applications. And, and, and different companies can take ourselves for the different aspects of um, um, meat manufacturing that they have established. But what we offer them is a very uh, standardized and robust starting material, and which is one of the key aspects of cell um, cultivated meat is the fact that there are different sources of cells, and we're going to come to this in a moment during the during the chat. But basically, we supply a type of cell that can be quite useful for starting the process of cell differentiation in the different um, um, settings, like like Rowan was explaining. And this is how we came into this. And and since then, we've been working with partners to build the supply chain for this industry. This industry is very new. There are many partners. So QCAN is, is one of the suppliers of growth factors. We supply sales. So we need to join some of these different partnerships to make this a viable business proposition for, for, the, for, the, for the consumer at the end, that we, we actually can produce a, a product that is of high quality, reproducibility, and, and, and taste. So we are building that network. We are, I'm an academic at the same time. So I work with multiple organizations around the UK and globally to establish an academic network of of uh, of, of um, scientists working in this area. It's very 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 new, uh, but we are very engaged and there is a lot of interest. And industry is actually calling on our expertise to to develop some of the solutions that are needed. So it's a great interaction right now between the business, academia, and and uh, unfortunately uh, this is growing really very fast. So very exciting times ahead for us. Definitely. Now, um, last but by no means least, Kai, tell us how you, and why you started Maltus and uh, what you're hoping to achieve. Thanks, Nick. Um, so I'm yeah, Kai, the co-founder and CEO of Maltus. We started in 2019 as a bioengineer at Imperial College at the time, and we saw the immense promise of, of cultivated meat, but recognized that this industry then and still today has uh, remaining bottlenecks and challenges in how to reach price parity and scale. 
And so we're an enabling technology company solving just that. We design uh, novel feedstocks and formulations to grow cells uh, to allow companies to achieve the kind of price parity, the scale-up required to bring products to market and uh, compete uh, on a global scale, whilst also considering the you know, aspects of supply chain security, um, affordability, food safety, and ultimately sustainability as well, because we're trying to build a better solution for the world. And so across our company, we do a lot of um, what we called engineering of biology. And so we're designing feedstocks and formulations with a lot of lab automation and, and machine learning to, to solve these breakthrough challenges for companies and help companies that are perhaps a bit later stage source these solutions in the right way. Mm. So very much excited to be here today. Brilliant. It's great to have you. So we're talking about cell lines and growth factors and the role of genetic engineering. Um, firstly, though, Catherine, could you tell me in 30 seconds or so what a growth factor is and what does it do in the whole process of growing meat? Yep, no problem at all. So um, growth factors are naturally occurring proteins um, that in the animal control the development and the growth of cells. So they're highly bioactive, highly potent bioactive proteins and in nature are subject to several different control mechanisms, which is really important when we consider how we're removing them from that natural environment to be used in a bioreactor, particularly for this industry where we need true scale. Mm -hmm. um, so growth factors are critical components of the cell culture media, the liquid that the cells grow in. And uh, within there, they, they, they float around in the media and then they bind onto the surface of cells and they give those cells a set of signals that tell them whether to um, proliferate or to, to expand or to generate additional biomass in this industry um, or to influence the type of cell or the maturation of the cells. So growth factors encompasses many different proteins with different styles of those proteins, different levels of complexities and different serial functions within that, that process of generating a final meat product. Um, at the moment, the principal source of growth factors in many um, cell culture conditions, including some of the um, cultivated meats that have, that have got, gone to consumer, are, is fetal bovine serum. And that's what, as an industry, we're trying to replace both for ethical and sustainability reasons. Um, and within that FBS is a, an incredibly complex mixture of growth factors. And what, what as an industry, most of the people working in this field are trying to unpick which are the absolute growth factors those cells need, in what concentrations, what presentation, and look at really defi defining those medias. And that's where, for instance, Kai's technology is super, where you're looking at a, a very high throughput evaluation of different combinations of growth factors to give an optimal media. Um, I've always said to people, one of the simplest ways of cutting costs is use a hundredfold less growth growth factor. And and you know, and, and as an industry, those are the sorts of things, think really simple, pragmatic things that we're thinking about now. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ramiro, just um, quickly, the role of the cell. It's probably an obvious question, but how important is that to the whole process? Well, as lines? Katrin outlined, so cells require signals and those signals are provided by the growth factors. Now, it depends what cell you're uh, working with, what's, what signals are required for that cell to, 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 
you know, express its potential, if you like. So cells are undergoing myogenesis, so differentiation into muscle or into fat require different growth factors because different factors induce different responses in the cell to activate specific genes, and those genes give the cells identity. Similarly, when you're growing embryonic stem cells, which are the, the, pre the, the precursors of this specific lineage, they require a different set of factors. And the important thing here is that we are now beginning to understand what are the critical factors that cells require at different stages of development to uh, ensue those, uh, those programs of, of differentiation. Mm. And that's what really helps us tailor specific media that will not require the mixture of serum, which is highly, uh, highly uh, undefined, if you like. And, and now we're beginning to, to, to create media that are serum-free, and very specific additions are added to specific steps during growing during the growing and differentiation of the cells. And because we're beginning to understand this now, we can tailor those so that cost is reduced and and, and the specificity of differentiation is much well, much more controlled. So now we can go from A to B in a much more controlled fashion by delivering those growth factors at the right time. Mm -hmm. Now, genetic engineering techniques are employed to optimize the growth, the quality, and the sustainability of cultivated meat. Rowan, what do we mean by genetic engineering, and then how does it differ from genetically modified? Yeah, sure. I mean, I've actually got a really, a really simple short answer for this one, and that's quite reductist in its nature, and maybe the others might disagree with it a bit. But I think, in my, in my mind anyway, genetic engineering is you are manipulating the components of a cell which are already existing. So you're using different molecular biological techniques to change its wiring. And you know, the main protagonist there in everybody's mind will be CRISPR. Whereas the big difference then for genetic modification would be the introduction of foreign DNA to the cell. And that foreign DNA is then functionalized to you know modify the cell in a certain manner, which will give then a certain phenotype. So mm -hmm. it might you can boil it down to that that simplest definition in my mind. So, so based on that, there shouldn't be any uh, controversy surrounding GE. Well, <laughs> I think everyone will have their own personal opinions, you know, when it comes to modification of foods and foodstuffs with GE or GM, and it's very jurisdiction-specific. Uh, when it comes to the UK, I think the most pertinent thing to point out, you know, to take a politician's answer, actually to use their legislation, which would be, you know, the precision breeding bill, which got royal assent here in March this year. Um, and that actually, you know, now allows livestock producers and those who produce crops to make those precise changes, which would be otherwise naturally occurring, which I think is the key point, you know, to their selective breeding processes. Now, that legislation actually isn't, I believe, intended to incorporate cultivated meat, but I think it shows that the direction of travel globally and, and in the UK is headed towards a, a space where genetic engineering will be largely acceptable. Does anyone else have anything to add there before we move on to cell selection? I mean, it's important to highlight that the big difference is also safety with gene editing. The safety aspect is is is, is guaranteed essentially because these processes, are, as Ron said, are potentially naturally occurring. You're just uh, inducing them in a very controlled fashion, whereas there is still uh, some concerns about certain types of transgenes that might, might, one might be using for genetic engineering. So gene editing is, is in that sense, has a, a little safety or an acceptance that is, is, is diff completely different.
I mean, Ramiro, we'll stay with you, actually. We'll talk about um, the cells themselves uh, and cell selection. Um, you're probably best placed to comment on the sort of specifics of stem cells. Yes. I mean, uh, for those that are not familiar with the cultivated meat sector, there are, there are three major types of cells that are being used uh, globally. It's either primary cells taken from a biopsy, which is probably what you heard the most uh, from any part of the body of the animal. And those cells can be then expanded in the lab. Uh, however, those primary cells tend to have limited lifespan. So immortalization is the next step that people uh, suggest to take, which can be done genetically or spontaneously. And those cells are somatic cells, typically, or somatic stem cells. And the third type is the embryonic stem cells, which are uh, cells obtained from a, a pre-implantation embryo. The, the ones that we generated uh, as pluricells are, are the ones that we, we developed in our labs. And these are naturally immortal in the sense that these cells are programmed to grow forever. Whereas in an embryo, they don't do forever because they make an embryo. We can capture those in, in the lab and, and perpetuate their life in a self-renewing state permanently. So these are the three major cell types that are available to initiate this process of cultivated meat production. Mm-hmm. And, and with, with all of them having very different requirements. And this is why the GM in this webinar is, is quite essential for one subset of these cell types. Yeah. And uh, Rowan, you're using primary um, cell types, is that right? Yeah, so at Ivy, we've we've used stem cells as well, but our our main R&D core focus is primary-derived cells. Um, You know, they have many disadvantages, like Ramiro has pointed out, that they require then, you know, these techniques to immortalize them, to give them the right characteristics to satisfy what we need at cultivated meat to get to scale. Uh, But they then have the advantage that they are adult. So when you can take a piece of muscle tissue from your host animal of choice, you know, digest it to isolate cells in the laboratory, you can then manipulate from a very large heterogeneous cell pool, as many cell types in skeletal muscle, for example, you know, with defined conditions to, you know, encourage the proliferation of the cells you want. You know, usually that would just be myoblasts from muscles, so adult muscle cells. But, you know, there's other ones of particular interest there if you're looking to produce fat, such as fibroadipogenic progenitors. Um, you know, a lot of companies work with fibroblasts also, which are resident, so skeletal muscle-derived fibroblasts. And if you're using adipose tissue, then you can get the mesenchymal type of cells, the adipose-derived stem cells. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we do that. I think the key thing, which Ramiro certainly really pointed out, is there's a big cell selection process which happens there. Um, mm-hmm. And you need to have a quite a deep phenotyping capability to phenotype those derived heterogeneous populations against your cultivated meat process to then find the ones which you actually need. So, I mean, here we talk about cell type, but that's just something we have assigned to you know markers and proteins of interest, which typically are identified against a certain cell. Mm-hmm. So within a myoblast, there are many subsets of myoblasts, similar with fibroblasts, and they all have their own, you know, unique identity and capacity. So, yeah, I mean, it's a big picture, it's a big puzzle, but it's quite an exciting one for sure. Yeah, well, hopefully you uh, make that picture a little bit clearer for us by the end of this. Now we're going to move on to uh, growth factors, Catherine and Kai. Um, how at QKine and Maltus are you helping um, to reduce those all-important production costs? Kai, we'll, we'll start with you. Sure. So, so at Maltus, we, we look broadly in, in I'd say, three key areas. Um, one is to try and lower the cost of, uh, of growth factors. And these are these signaling molecules that, that Catherine talked about, looking at uh, new ways of 
producing or designing the signaling uh, stimulus to, to make cells grow quicker. Secondly, is, is to look um, on the other side of, of growth media, which is you know the, the sugars, the fats, the vitamins that cells need to grow, and trying to source these from more scalable, abundant uh, sources. So we look a lot at plant-derived extracts, uh, for example, to, to try and source these valuable nutrients to grow cells. And these are typically ingredients that are used in the food industry, and so haven't been uh, used much before to grow cells directly in the biopharmaceutical industry, for example. So doing lots of work to try and um, process these, these materials in a way that we can use to grow cells for food. Um, the, the third key area is in how we bring these together. And this is a big um, optimization challenge where we're trying to find the, the best recipe for specific cells that behave in specific ways. Um, and so, as I talked about before, we run many tens of thousands of experiments and collect all this data to really find the best way to feed cells so that they, so that they grow quickly. Um, mm -hmm. So this combination of having uh, affordable input materials and those input materials combined in the right way to grow cells quickly means that overall your production cost is is lower. And so those are the kind of broad strategies that we use, but we work with many partners in that process um, mm -hmm. to to source these materials at scale. And uh, Catherine at QKine, is it a similar similar goal? I'm going to be slightly controversial here, and I don't actually think long term for this industry, the actual innate cost of the growth factor is going to be a limiting factor. Although at the moment, people often look in the LCA studies and things, they're looking at a farmer grade growth factor that's manufactured at a very small scale, and they use that as a cost determinant. Now, I actually, and from talking to um, people in this industry, once we know what we want to scale, and that's the big challenge. As Ramiro said, this is a new industry and actually the biology is very nascent across the board. Uh, we don't even really have optimized formulas yet for cell culture media. You know, Kai's team are doing an awesome job of trying to at least explore the search space in a more constructive way. But actually, when you look at the fundamental growth factor production, um, maybe you'd split growth factors into two different categories, the easy ones and the hard ones, because that is going to be a challenge for the industry. It's very easy to scale up easy growth factors. And we already have industries which are producing food enzymes and food processing aids at massive scale. So for instance, for cheese manufacture, a lot of those techniques are very parallel to what we'll need to do for those easy growth factors that we scale. There's good advanced molecular plant farming as well. I think the bigger challenge for the industry is actually working out what to scale and then making sure that we're scaling most efficiently. Um, there are some interesting trends we've seen in this area as well um, that for, particularly when people are looking at first regulatory filings, we're actually seeing the, the whole industry is getting much more cautious about their growth factor supply. So whereas we used to be looking at engineered proteins, so those ones where we change the natural sequence of the protein, um, we're now seeing a lot of caution with using anything that, that has a non-wild type sequence in it because, or more than minor modifications because of the unknowns around the regu regulator's requirement for the supply chain. Um, we are seeing a more, um, a more, emphasis on things like making sure there are no protein tags on those proteins, which is a very bad idea for a regulator, making sure that actually you've looked at whether there's an allergen, making sure that the full process of manufacturing, that there's no allergens within that, that manufacturing process and 
Um, I actually think those challenges at this point and probably for the next three or four years are much more significant than just looking at a, a measure of growth factor cost because it's a very, very scalable industry. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I think it was you, Catherine, who mentioned um, FBS earlier. I mean, we hear a lot about serum-free media. Um, what, what, are there any specific challenges associated with developing um, serum-free media? Well, I mean, I'll give you a sort of a, a, a very straightforward and maybe simplistic answer is um, FBS contains thousands of proteins, thousands of cofactors. It's got lipids, it's got all sorts in it. We don't actually know in a lot of cases what's actually acting on the cells to give the behavior that we want. And I'm sure Ramiro or Rowan will have a, a more detailed view on that. Um, the other kind of interesting conundrum for the industry is a lot of the research base that we've got is based on using FPS, which is obviously bovine growth factors on human cells. And we're now looking at trying to use bovine growth factors, replacing those on porcine or fish, or uh, it's, it's a mess. We don't have enough of a research base to make really rational decisions. And unfortunately that puts a lot of emphasis on companies like, like Rowan, like Ivy Farm, to really build a research base very quickly across many horizontals. Um, but other people will have a, a, a more nuanced view of that, I think. Mm-hmm. Kai, did you have anything to add there? Yeah, if I can perhaps break it down in, into two challenges, uh, I think Catherine's... Can you hear me? Wait, yeah, we can. Yeah, it's breaking up a little bit, but we'll get by. Maybe we won't get back. Sorry, I think I'm, being, I'm back now. Oh, you're back. <laughs> yeah, but sorry, sorry about that. Um, yeah, I think there are broadly two challenges, and I'd say Catherine's absolutely right. One is that the types of raw materials that we have to start with are broadly inadequate. We're you know building off an industry that's been reliant on animal-derived ingredients, the biopharmaceutical industries, being able to get away with very high costs, um, and really solutions that are just good enough that they work and find we'll, we'll use it. Um, that's just not the case in, in cultivated meat. We need far more scalable, affordable, secure raw materials to start with. And so we're doing lots of work and Maltus to diversify the, the input ingredients. Then the second part is we're then trying to optimize with potentially hundreds of possible ingredients. We're growing cells, as Catherine said, that we haven't necessarily studied for decades in biomedical research and fish and chicken and lamb, for example. So we're trying to find ways to work with new and, and complex input ingredients to grow new cells, to do new things. And so that's, that's a really hard challenge to solve. And so that's mm-hmm. where at Maltus, we employ a lot of lab automation and machine learning to start moving through that challenge. And so we can mm-hmm. run lots and lots of experiments. We can collect lots and lots of data about how different cells behave in, in different growth media and then start to understand the relationship between these new ingredients and, and the outcomes that we want. And, and ultimately, we're trying, trying to achieve very rapid and productive cell growth. We want the cells to be functional and tasty because of food. And we also want to be aware of important regulatory challenges or constraints, let's say, scale constraints and security constraints. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a little bit off topic, but uh, are there any differences in requirements between the different types of cultivated meat when it comes to growth factors, such as beef, chicken, or fish, or mammoth? Certainly, yeah. So so different cells will have uh, slightly 
different receptors on on their on their cells, so they require different growth factors. Um, whether it's a muscle cell or a fat cell or maybe a stem cell that you're starting with, those require a different set of signaling stimuli to grow in the right way. And so, um, yeah, we work with many different cell types and species to design specific solutions for those. The other thing that that companies need to consider as they scale is is their supply chain. And so, you might be growing cow muscle cells in the UK or the US, and just your access to raw materials to feed into that production process will be different. And so you need mm -hmm. to design different recipes for different geographies as well. Um, Kai, I'm going to stay with you. Are there any new advances in engineering biology to produce um, growth factors more efficiently? Anything you've see, you're seeing on the horizon? Yeah, so I think um, as kind of thinking about this, there are maybe three strategies that, that companies are, are using. One is is to be more efficient at turning your kind of raw materials into protein. And so lots of companies um, being more efficient with uh, the yeast or bacteria that they're growing to make more protein per liter per cell. Um, so that, that means you get more protein to, to start with, more growth factors to start with. The other way which companies are really exploring now, particularly as we're working in food and, and not medical industry, is in the purification. So how can we streamline and and strip out expensive purification steps and work perhaps with uh, more crude growth factors to to feed into our process. Of course, that adds variability and, and noise, which you need to control, and that's really important. So you have to really understand what those impurities might be and um, what their effects on, on cell growth would be. Thirdly, as one that's perhaps kind of earlier in development and emerging as a solution, but that's to design new protein structures that are more functional and, and scalable. And so growth factors, because they're kind of used biologically as signaling proteins, they tend to break down very quickly. And they're quite sensitive to their external environment. And so we can um, design new structures to deliver these messages um, more potently, so they're more biologically active, and to, to perhaps control their stability so that they, they last around for longer. We can reduce the total amount required in the process. Um, that was a, a bit earlier in development, and as Catherine said, a lot of companies for their, their first time through the regulatory process want to, to keep things simple. So maybe kind of working with the, the wild type ones right now, but I think that there could be opportunities as this industry scales to be designing um, more specific proteins for the biomanufacturing process that we're designing for. And we see this in many other industries in enzymes for laundry detergent, for example, or on food today, you tend to design the, the proteins to be fit for purpose. Mm -hmm. um, before moving on to our next topic, um, if you've got any questions, just put them in the chat there and uh, I'll get to them. Um, so let's move on to the crucial factor of quality and flavor enhancement, um, especially if you want to persuade consumers that this is the real deal, just made another way. Rowan, are, th are there any um, GE techniques that have been explored to improve um, the taste, texture or nutritional profile of um, the cultivated meats? Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably one technique which is going to be predominant and predominantly used by, uh, you know, most companies in the, in this space. But I think they'd preface it first by saying that the first thing we need to do is actually get an initial product all the way through to scale. Mm -hmm. um, the nutrition and the taste is going to be absolutely critical. But what we see already from, you know, several species and a couple of breeds within one species. So, you know, we have Abidin Angus, we have Wagyu, and we also have uh, pig cells, which we've taken all the way through into our into our pilot. And we get really good nutrition. 
and you can benchmark that you know back against fresh meat and the amino acid profiles are good so actually you know we're already really confident that without the editing of you know using things like crispr the nutrition is going to be there mm-hmm. um what we need to do is get the taste thing you know completely through in sources so there's two ways you can do that one is through product development and you know there's a lot of large scale biomass or food stuff ingredient production which happens which is then used in a b2b fashion and you know goes on and becomes part of somebody else's product if you're going to use a cultivated meat pipeline to produce you know your own product and then manufacture and sell it and you know you're not happy with the taste of what comes out of there that's when things get quite you know for me scientifically very exciting Mm -hmm. uh you know you can start implementing some of these, you know, really large type of functional genomic type of approaches. Um, and when you've got a functionalized development pipeline, I mean, I, I do semi joke with the guys here about eating our experiments, but it actually <laughs> is getting towards that point because the cells we work with are safe and they're nutritionally valuable. So I can see a point in the future where we can, you know, use these large screening approaches to identify specific genes of interest, make our desired precision change to those genes, and then scale them up, you know? And then the phenotype we're looking for is actually sensory taste and mouthfeel, and then nutrition. And that's a really exciting area, but we're not there yet as an industry. (laughs) I think it's gonna be brilliant, but I think the first thing we need to do is focus on, you know, getting things really through to scale, and that's making it cost viability scale. Rowan, you're at a dinner party and you tell the person next to you what you do for a living. Um, are you, can you understand that there are sort of ethical um, considerations here? I mean, how how would you counter those, especially when it comes to sort of using GE to um, enhance specific um, characteristics of the final product? Well, I mean, the GE aspect to it is very different from the cultivated meat aspect to it because the cultivated meat ethical landscape, I think, is shines very positively. You know, we've got the environmental aspect, we've got the animal welfare aspect, and overall, they link together and give us, you know, massive food security. So I think this is an industry which the world really needs. The GE thing and the GM thing are always going to be, you know, jurisdiction-specific and person-specific. I think people find GE much more, uh, yeah, easier to deal with because you're not adding anything. So it's very precise and there are changes which can occur naturally. And actually, if you talk to the regulators, you know, we already have crops and things which are treated, you know, in certain ways to introduce, you know, these changes through random mutagenesis. But they introduce many, many, many changes. Whereas GE introduces one precise change into one specific point of DNA. So actually, it's much safer than a lot of the things which we eat already. Mm -hmm. Ramiro, did you have anything to add to that? No, I mean, uh, as I said, I think the ethical aspect of eating um, cultivated meat is 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 is, is a very um, valuable aspect. I think for any eat, meat eater today, thinking about potential damage to the environment and and of course the welfare issue has to be always present. We have really never thought of it probably in the past 20, 30 years. I'd, there was a component of, uh, you know, impact to our planet in producing conventional meat. We have to see this as an alternative that offers 
a guilt-free meat uh, uh, solution. Uh, so I, I think the ethics is, is, is really definitely very clear here that we, we are helping the planet. The question will be whether, whether culture that meat can be produced in a sustainable way. At the moment, we are not there yet. And so this needs the investment and the, the, the supply chains building up to, to, to raising to the, to, to the challenge of, of, of getting this industry into, into a sustainable path. Mm-hmm. We are way, long way away from that. But I think the investment and the efforts that are coming from different directions are, are, are giving us a, a, an opportunity here to, to really make a difference. And I think people will prefer, I think, in the long term to eat this meat of conventional meat potentially because of the differential aspects that we, it will have with regards to the to the sustainability agenda uh, that will be um, will be will be in front of us uh, every time we make a decision in the supermarket. So this has an opportunity of making a, a fundamental transformation in how we we consume um, products in the future. But we're going to have a bit of a free for all now. We're going to move on to safety and regulations, and I'm sure you've all got an opinion on that. Um, I mean, what are the regulatory pitfalls when using these technologies as companies sort of move forward to submit their first dossiers? You know, especially in Europe, where it's a little bit more, a little bit more tricky. I mean, are there any specific frameworks governing the, the GE of cells for food, and how they do they differ, for instance, across regions, Europe, the US, Asia? I can maybe start, but uh, happy to have others uh, add to this. Broadly, there's an existing framework for new foods that are being introduced to the market. There's a, a rigorous set of steps that companies need to do to demonstrate the safety of their products and, and really uh, outline very precisely their manufacturing processes, their inputs, um, and, and how their product can be characterized. And so. Products coming to market are extremely rigorously tested for, for safety, and I think that's that's a really good thing. Um, what we see is, is different frameworks in different jurisdictions. And so the US, for example, has just this year approved two products to, to come to market. Um, there's a different process to get a product in the market than there is in Europe than there is in, in Singapore. Um, the challenge perhaps that, that companies face today is in Europe, that framework has existed, but hasn't really adapted to um, the opportunity and, and the new manufacturing technologies using cultivated meat. And so it, it's so general um, that companies um, take a long time to navigate uh, through that framework and, and don't really get a lot of input and advice from regulatory bodies. Whereas in, in the US and in Singapore, it's much more collaborative. And so together, the industry and regulators can build a, uh, a better framework uh, for bringing these products to market uh, efficiently, I say quickly. That's not to say with lower standards. It's just to say they're assessing these products in a better way. Uh, and so Europe, of course, has very high standards. But the way in which they're assessing this is for the UK as well um, is not very friendly to cultivated meat companies because there's very little guidance. Right Catherine, what's uh, your opinion on on that uh, topic? I think it's challenging for the industry because uh, the industry is trying to develop both processes, the analytics that the regulators need, and um, also to work within an existing framework. There are some superbly positive moves on the ba- on both from uh, EFSA, the European Food Standards Agency. Absolutely, Kai's right. You know, it's a it's a complex landscape to navigate. Um, and particularly from the UK um, FSA, Food Standards Agency. 
who've really opened up to consultation with the industry to work out how we can refine the both the regulatory guidelines but also the legislative environment as well for novel foods. So I think um, there's a there's, there's a, a very promising level of discussion around the regulatory because this is such an important um, area for future food security. And, and I really think over the next five years, we'll see that develop um, develop, and, and we'll, it will push forward the novel foods regulations, which will benefit both cultivated meat and all other types of novel foods like, you know, fermented palm oil and things like that, which can have another uh, huge sustainability impact. Mm-hmm. Um, just from a, a growth factors perspective, um, so we are obviously in the supply chain. So we're one step back from that regulatory filing. But we still have responsibilities to support the industry as uh, we're classed as food processing aids, which in, in the UK, which is a you know, or and EFSA, which is the sort of technical term for what what we what growth factors are counted as. So they're they're components which are not in the final product, or 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 present only in trace amounts. But as a supplier, it's actually equally challenging because we need to provide information to our customers in the cultivated meat world. And they don't really know what what is needed within those dossiers, and um, the the sort of the the food standard, which people refer to food grade, which is it's it's a it's actually sometimes counterproductive for the industry because, as Kai said, some people use that to refer to crude growth factors that are a complex mix, and actually those complex mix of growth factors are very challenging for a regulator to evaluate in a first early filing. Um, and and actually, food grade to me is more around the quality management system that wraps around the manufacture of those process, not an indicator of some some intrinsic property of the the product itself. Um, so there is there's a lot of lack of clarity of what the supply chain needs to do and needs to develop, and that's why conversations like this are so important because it's actually by collaborating across all the verticals that will allow us to build a credible supply chain, particularly a credible UK supply chain as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it is one um, thing that, you know, post-Brexit, the FSA does have more flexibility than EFSA for the first time. So so it is able to move forwards. We're going to discuss uh, that mm-hmm. a little bit before the end. Um, now, Rowan, you're making um, a, a meat product. Um, presumably, you may not even tell me, but presumably you're have either submitted um, or are in the process of submitting um, your dossiers to FDA and uh, probably Singapore as well. Have, have, have you thought about Europe yet? Well, firstly, I probably won't tell you, but uh, <laughs> allude to it. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we've made great progress here over the last couple of years and we are quite advanced now with, you know, we're in regular dialogue with the FDA, uh, the Singapore Food Agency, and also here at home in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Catherine's right. I mean, Brexit does give us a real opportunity to be more agile here. Um, but also, you'll notice that most companies are currently submitting to the USA and Singapore, and that's because their processes are more established. And I think that's really important to highlight that geographies which have these established processes first will attract the first movers in the industry. And then they will hence attract, you know, the economic value, which is accompanied with that. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's really important. 
Uh, you know, when it comes to the the safety regarding, you know, the US submissions, I think one thing around genetic engineering specifically, which is very interesting, you know, from um, one of the approvals they did with, with Upside was this like triple safety layer, as they would call it, which was, you know, first of all, when the cells come out of the terminal bioreactor, they're rendered unviable. So that, that's one. And then number two, the proteins typically all denature during the cooking process. And then three, during the eating process and anything which did not get denatured during the cooking process is then broken down by the stomach acid. So actually, a lot of this we need to look at is about the safety of the food, mm-hmm. not about the safety of the biotechnology, because it's about, you know, the point of eating, not the point of, you know, you actually doing stuff to your cells. Mm-hmm. So that that's one clarification, which, you know, I think is really important to share. I think as an industry, as we progress and become more mature, uh, I think that will come more to the fore. Um, but yeah, I mean, safety is paramount and we're undergoing, you know, every hoop we're going through right now. Yeah. Across those jurisdictions. I guess the challenge in Europe is when it takes, you know, up to five years to from submission to actually get that green light, uh, your, your technology and your methods may have changed significantly in that five years. Things move so fast. And then Which you'd have is, to re- like, resubmit yeah. something. <laughs> Which is why what what Kai was talking about around the collaborative approach to doing this is so important. You know, yeah, our technology evolves on a monthly level. And when you're, you know, submitting what you probably call pilot level manufacturing technologies, you know, by the time you actually come to produce a commercial scale, that will have shifted, you know, Mm -hmm. and you can make amendments, but then it all slows the process down. So I think also, you know, it's an iterative learning process, isn't it? I think the regulatory authorities can learn from us and we can learn from them. And then together we would arrive at the safest, most practical solution. Yeah. To make it work in each jurisdiction. Yeah. Well, certainly they seem more proactive in um, Singapore and the US. And so now I've got a question here. I don't actually know who it's from, but it says, are there any concerns about the long-term sustainability of GE and cultivated meat production, such as potential genetic drift or unintended consequences? Um, I don't know who's going to put their hand up for that one. Well, I, yeah. I can add. Oh, go on, go on. Okay. Well, I mean, I was going to just quick, very quickly say back to the, you know, the, the safety of the food. I mean, when when you produce your terminal cell bank, there is a quality standard which is applied to that cell bank, which characterizes in really, you know, some detail its its genotype. So mm-hmm. we know what it is before it begins the production window. And then part of the safety assessment also then is taking some of the product which comes out of your terminal bioreactor and ascertaining its genotype. And invariably it is the same. I think that comes back to, you know, the precision and the quality of the genetic edits. Are you clonal or does it give the cells growth advantage essentially? And then that dictates whether it's retained at the same percentage in the, in the genome. Uh, but ultimately, again, safety of the food. So whether that's a, you know, say you've knocked out a certain gene and your original score was 100 and now it's 50, that will affect your process, but it won't affect the safety of the food. Mm-hmm. Kai, what were you going to say? I was going to echo that. These manufacturing processes are incredibly rigorous and controlled. And so by design, you have to add these steps to look at whether your starting material, your cells are the same each time because you want to produce the same products each, each time. And that's really important in, in manufacturing. 
And that just adds all these layers of safety that you actually don't get in traditional uh, in industrial farming processes, cultivated meat in, in that sense. It's much um, just by pure fluke, uh, we've got uh, an all... Uh, studies oh. in its safety. Sorry, you cut off there, Kai. Maybe say that again. Just Sorry. Uh, yeah, I was just saying that cultivated meat is just very regular, rigorously tested for safety. Um, and that's by necessity and by design. Um, and that means cells and input materials are all studied with each production batch to, to make sure that it's the same thing going into the process every time. Mm -hmm. Um, as I was saying, just by pure fluke, we've got uh, an all-UK panel um, today, and you, you, we've touched on um, Brexit a little bit um, already. So what role can the UK play um, in the cultivated or the global cultivated meat space? I mean, I was actually quite shocked to find how much expertise there was in this country, and don't take offence at that. <laughs> Catherine? Yeah, I'll kick things off. So I think both, uh, so two things. You're absolutely right, Nick. We've got a, a fantastic wealth of experience in this country and a lot of the uh, uh, work around stem cells and Ramiro can chip in, in on this. We have a fantastic stem cell, cell manufacturing um, knowledge base. And we also have a very strong uh, monoclonal antibody manufacturing base as well. And actually there are parallels between scaling up all different uh, cell cultures. So we, um, particularly when we look at the availability of um, skilled work. So we're, we're really looking in the Q UK. We're also small, so it's really easy to collaborate and to meet up. Um, I think there's um, a superb opportunity here. What One of the challenges I think is until recently, the research base in the UK for cultivated meat related topics has been quite fragmented interesting but quite fragmented and i do feel that we need to build that research base in order to accelerate the entire industry um it's been very promising that the uk government have started to put some emphasis on this area in terms of funding so um but again the amount of funding that put in is, is a drop in the ocean compared to other parallel uh technologies which could which have a similar impact on global sustainability so and I think cultivated meat in total, uh, I hope my numbers are kind of about right, has received around about 20 million of government funding. Um, and that's uh, in part due to the large investment in the cellular agriculture manufacturing hub, so the EPSRC funded hub. So there's some very good indicators there. However, the other thing is the UK is a fantastic exporting nation. So we currently export to over 33 other countries. So, and what I love is that when I'm out talking, there's an awful lot of cross collaboration. Uh, we've all talked about needing approvals in different countries. So I think the UK really has a, a, a lot of potential in this space. Okay, we've got some um, questions here from uh, the audience. Uh, Stuart Wigglesworth, breed is important in current meat production due to things like how fast the animal grows and fat muscle ratios impacting flavour and texture. How do you think this will change with cultured meat? Do you think breed matters? And if so, what aspects? So if, if I ask these questions and just one of you pops your hand up to answer it, we might be able to get through all of them. Yeah, I can, I can say maybe something about breed. We've got a few. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it does make a difference, but ultimately, I think it'll make a difference to the nutrition and the flavor. But 
the performance will be, you know, dependent on how conserved the type of engineering you're doing to your cells is. And that depends on the targets which you're going after. <laughs> so, you know, the most efficient thing to do in developing a cell line platform is to have something which is agnostic to both species and breed. Um, that's kind of our approach here at Ivy Farm. Uh, you know, we can't afford to rewrite the whole script for every new breed and every new species. Mm -hmm. um, but that shouldn't influence the nutrition and the flavor where you get out of the, you know, the other end. Um, question here from Adam Hurst. This looks like it could be for Romero. Um, when using pluripotent stem cells um, to produce the biomass required for cultivated meat, does the main expansion happen at the stem cell stage or during differentiation to muscle fat? And as a follow-up question, if we have time, what is a rough estimate of the number of stem cells required? I don't think I can answer that question. Uh, I know you need a lot of cells, um, but I don't make muscle with my cells. So that that would be a question more for the people that use my cells to make muscle. How many cells do they need to produce a gram of fat or, or a gram of muscle? I uh, we we don't produce the muscle ourselves, but yeah, you need you need a lot of cells. And maybe Ron knows a bit more about efficiencies because he is in the production part. Okay, this is uh, Sarvesh. Dalvi, um, what is a tip for a cell culture scientist to break through into the lab meat industry? Rowan, you probably can answer that one. Hey, yeah, I tip. mean, just look at, look at the companies, look at the opportunities available. And if you're passionate about it and you're driven and motivated, you know, then that will come across an interview. So my tip would be to put yourself out there and apply. Okay, there's another one from uh, Sarah and I. Um, what are the economics like and what are the areas of cost reduction opportunities for cultivated meat? What is a realistic estimated time for this technology to reach current per kilo price of traditional meat? It's probably the last one we'll take. Yeah, I'll take a, a couple of levers that, that you can certainly pull on, on the growth media side is, is the cost of your, your input materials and how productive your, your growth media is. So how quickly and how many cells can you get per liter? And what is the cost per liter? These are these are the big levers that we're, we're pulling and that's the bulk of, of production. You're creating your biomass. And it's all about in cost, input costs and, and efficiency. So kind of how you might start, start moving those levers. Uh, one is sourcing alternative uh, feedstocks. The other is optimizing uh, the, the combination of those feedstocks with, with good uh, growth media formulations, having cells that grow quickly um, by, by nature or through how they've been designed. Having the kind of bioreactor, the growth environment set up in a way that's best suited for those cells and that growth media to to grow together. So th those are the kind of big levers that companies are using, pulling to uh, to bring down the cost. Uh, in terms of kind of projecting into the future, uh, maybe it depends on, on what cells are growing. I'd say for seafood, certain aspects of seafood, um, pretty soon. Um, I think when some of these products come to market, they could be competitive um, in restaurants, maybe not supermarkets this decade. Um, I guess the worry is government support um, generally in these this sort of novel food. I mean, we've already seen the present leaders backtracking on various green pledges in the recent weeks. Um, how supportive, Ramiro, is the government um, of these new novel foods? Yeah, the, the government has been a bit slow uh, in, in supporting this industry, as Catherine was saying earlier. I mean, this traditionally hasn't been uh, in the top agenda of any of the research councils. So it's been really, really hard for people to work 
with a justification that the, the, the aim was to produce cultured meat, something that didn't even exist. So really late, but uh, uh, thankfully uh, they have they have um, initiated uh, some rounds of funding. The EPSRC uh, was the, the the recent one, but now there is a new uh, innovation and knowledge center BBSRC fund uh, being launched, and we hope this this will will continue to grow. Uh, alongside the investment that um, industry is, is putting into this, so I think is 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 almost um, it will create this ecosystem in academia that we will have a lot more um, manpower being trained, a lot more um, um, moving parts from the regenerative side of things into this area because there is a lot of transferable skills, and the, the UK is very well placed for the, for to 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 maximize this 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 knowledge knowledge transfer because of the the big base that we have in the UK on regenerative medicine. So I'm pretty sure the, the government is looking very carefully at developments in this area, and they will probably be um, uh, looking to to see the first dossier uh, uh, approved in the UK to see how 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 this this industry develops in, in this country. So I think the times are, are good, and, and I, I appreciate that there, there has been some backtracking some of the pledges on, on green agenda, but, but this is... Um, yeah, this is a, a too good of an opportunity to miss. There is not much that can go wrong, I think, with this type of investment in this area. So, I, I'm I'm hopeful there will be there will be more investment in this uh, from the government. That, that was my line. Too big an opportunity to miss, Ramiro. Right, you've got thirty seconds each, right. and fine later each of you. Um, what, if anything, could prevent this vision uh, encapsulated by cultivated meat from happening, Catherine? Insufficient collaboration. We need to collaborate and um, get scientific rigor into the pod processes before we concentrate on scale. Rowan? Dynamic relationship between receiving external investment and commercial viability. We didn't even have time to talk about investments. Um, Kai? I agree with Catherine. I think to go far, we need to go together. We need smart partnerships um, between companies, government, relationship with, with the public and incumbents that exist already in the food industry. Um, we need to all be working together to make this a reality. And final words to Ramiro. Is a risk. Yeah, Sorry, I mean, all, all the same, but including also um, consumer participation in this dialogue. I think people need to be convinced that this is this is the good thing to, to have as an alternative and, and involving the, the public as much as possible in this journey. Thank you. Right. That's uh, all we've got time for. We've gone a few minutes over time, but nobody's pulled the plug yet. Um, Catherine, Rowan, Ramiro and Kai, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, and thank you to everybody else for joining us today. Um, just a reminder, this will be available on, on demand, so you can watch this later on. You can share it with your colleagues if they weren't able to attend today. And we hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast. Now, join us next month on the 25th of October for our next installment, Unleashing the Nutritional Potential of Plant-Based Proteins. And I think I'm right in saying that we have speakers from Ingredion and Huel already lined up for that one. So please do look that up on our website. If you didn't get a chance to, uh, if I didn't get a chance to ask your question today, I'm sure our panelists won't mind you reaching out to them on LinkedIn. And finally, 
don't forget our magazine, Protein Production Technology International, shameless plug as always. The October-November 2023 edition will be out later today. And once again, it's packed full of some thought-provoking articles, uh, including cell lines and growth media. And some of our uh, panelists today are actually in that article. Um, but there's also articles on alternative fats, um, alternative proteins for the pet food industry. And there's a great interview with Good Meats' Josh Tetrick. And I say that because I wrote it. Um, we hope you've all enjoyed um, reading um, the magazine and we hope you've enjoyed the broadcast today. Um, thank you for participating. Until next time, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Future of Protein Production Podcast. We hope you gained valuable insights and knowledge about the innovative technologies and practices that are transforming the way we produce protein. Don't forget to subscribe to Protein Production Technology International, our multimedia magazine, and follow us on social media to stay up to date with the latest news and updates. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes.